Okay, so, so you're a millionaire. <laughs> cryptocurrency millionaire. A yes. cryptocurrency millionaire. Definitely. But does that translate into being a millionaire? It does. Yeah. It does. We face two, two choices. If these currencies are coming, we could engage with them or we could pretend that they don't exist. And we can only pretend they don't exist at our own peril because they are there. You know, there's a lot that's happening in Bitcoin, a lot more than I can cover now. But if you are interested at all, I suggest you, you know, buy some Bitcoins, buy you know, 200 rands worth, $20, whatever it is, and just try and spend it online. Try and get an experience of it because I think I believe today we're at the, at the starting point, at the infancy of where this technology is going. And if you want to feel, if you feel this is a big enough idea, you should expose yourself to it. Hey, welcome to the Commute Podcast. I'm Jessica Van Anselen. In 2017, Google Trends reported that South Africa topped every other country in the world with Google searches for the word Bitcoin. And one of those voices you just heard was the governor of the South African Reserve Bank, Leseja Kanyako, acknowledging that either Saab get with cryptocurrencies or get left behind. Everyone seems to be talking about Bitcoin. I even heard a story about an academic in the Eastern Cape who invested early in Bitcoin and is now a multi-multi-gajillionaire, just driving around the town of Alice dishing dollar bills out the window of his car and handing out his lecture notes on 200 rand bills. Okay, maybe elements of that story won't pass Africa check. It's easy to see the appeal of a currency that exists digitally without being tied to the whims of a central bank or a reserve bank, and politics generally. I know it piqued my interest. But then there seem to be the scams. I keep reading reports about bitcoins being stolen. So how does that work? And the Hawks recently announced that they were investigating a $50 million scam, cheating South African investors out of their Bitcoin. I wanted to learn a bit more about SA's keen interest in Bitcoin from someone who could explain it simply. And it's not just Bitcoin, it's cryptocurrencies generally, and blockchain. I keep hearing stories about blockchain's potential for everything, from mining, and I want to do a separate podcast about that, to tracking where your gift cards go to the voters' roll. So I found myself a crypto expert. Claire Ingram Bogush is a South African who has a PhD from the Stockholm School of Economics. She conducts research into how the presence of digital artifacts and digital code in particular supercharges entrepreneurship and changes how we interact both offline and online. You can visit her website at clairebogush.com for more information. I've put the link to her website in the show notes. I got Claire on the line from Sweden for a chat. Claire, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So let's start with the very basics. I mean, what is a currency? So currencies, as we, as we think of them today, have a couple of characteristics. Uh, the first and foremost is that they are a payment option. You can use them to purchase things. Uh, the second is that they are usually backed by some kind of central bank. Uh, and why this is important is because a central bank uh, both guarantees the currency in the event that something goes wrong, but also they have monetary policy, which can allow them to essentially adjust the value of the currency. And this becomes really important when we start comparing it to cryptocurrencies, because central banks can stabilize currencies' value. Uh, and that's incredibly important when you think about the first characteristic of a, a currency, which is that you can buy things using it. Um, because if if the value of a currency fluctuates, it becomes very difficult to set a price for a good in that currency. Uh, and so that's why this monetary policy becomes very important. 
So central banks are able to set monetary policy. Bitcoin, however, has no central bank. And let's just, what is Bitcoin? So Bitcoin originally presented itself or its original creators presented itself it as being a currency. So that's a payment method, but contained in cryptography rather than in fiat currency or, or little coins. Uh, what it has become today is more like digital gold, which is precisely because there is no stability in the value of the cryptocurrency and consequently people use it more like a commodity. They invest in it in order to make gains. They don't buy it in order to use it to buy bread and milk at the shop around the corner. Um, so Bitcoin is this purely digital cryptocurrency built on top of a whole new technology, which means that it's independent of any government uh, and is maintained in a distributed fashion by individuals all over the globe. So if it's an entirely digital currency, what's to prevent me as a hacker from going in and stealing your Bitcoin overnight? That's a great question. And it's a, it's a tricky one to answer because on the one hand, almost nothing. Uh, what has happened is that people have kept Bitcoins on servers that are publicly accessible and hackers have come in and stolen them. Um, it is it is entirely possible. Um, and But let, let's just back up before we talk about those, those thefts to maybe describe the, the underlying technology, um, because I think an appreciation of that will, will help uh, make sense of the whole ecosystem. So what Bitcoin is, is it is a currency that is built on top of the blockchain uh, technology system or distributed ledger technology. And what this blockchain system does is it's a distributed network of computers. And when, for instance, I send Bitcoin to you, what happens is I need to send this request to transact via the distributed network, right? And so I enter it into the network and the network collectively then verifies A, that I do have the Bitcoins to send um, and, and their origin and that they're not fraudulent and B, verifies both my wallet address and your wallet address. And in doing this verification, these computers or the distributed network compete to verify the most quickly and the computer that verifies the quickest uh, gets rewarded for the work that it has done in the form of a portion of a Bitcoin. And the product of that verification is that they then use cryptography to turn the information about my transaction to you into a little function, which is then stored in a distributed ledger and sent out to all of the other members in the distributed network. Um, and that ledger is also called the blockchain. So you have blockchain with a big B being the technology and blockchain with a little b being the actual ledger, which is a, a record all of all of the transactions that have occurred. In principle, what this verification system means is that nobody can spend their Bitcoins twice so I can't send a Bitcoin to you and then send the same Bitcoin to, I don't know, my cousin in London, because the distributed system will have acknowledged that I've already sent the Bitcoin to you, so I can't send it to London. So it avoids a double spend problem. 
What it doesn't avoid completely is the theft that you're describing. Because in order to access one's own Bitcoins, one needs what's called a private key. And your private key, if it is stored somewhere where it can be hacked into, like on a computer or a server that's connected to the internet, hackers can get that private key and use the private key to essentially pretend to be you. Um, and, and that is why theft still occurs if, if one isn't careful. But there isn't a double spend problem. Uh, and it's it's fairly difficult to perpetrate fraud aside from the, the theft uh, that I've just described. The, the process of Bitcoin transactions, how long does that usually take given that rapid verification is incentivized by the system? So originally they were very quick, nearly instantaneous. What has happened is that the number of transactions uh, has exceeded the capacity of the network as it is today. So today a transaction would actually take somewhere around 15 minutes. And one of the ways to get around it is to pay the verifiers. These verifiers are called miners. So if you, if it were rather, if I wanted to send you money and I wanted it to be sent right now, I could add, I don't know, whatever, not comma not not eight of a of a bitcoin to the transaction to pay the miners to prioritize my transaction over others in the network. And bitcoin is not the only cryptocurrency by any means. There are other ones. Absolutely, um, many many. Um, you can look online and find them. Uh, some of the big ones that are very well known are Ether, uh, Ripple. And Monero, which is a, a very interesting one that's more anonymous than, Bit than Bitcoin. Um, there have also been attempts to uh, peg cryptocurrencies to fiat currencies. So an example of that is Tether, which is an American one. Lots and lots of cryptocurrencies. And Venezuela just introduced a cryptocurrency, didn't they? Uh, they haven't introduced it yet. They're, they're still discussing it. Uh, but they, yes, exactly, are trying to create a petrodollar uh, where they have a currency that is linked to their petroleum output. It remains to be seen how this will be operationalized, but yeah, certainly not just individuals investigating the space. Governments are interested as well. So I'm convinced I want to buy Bitcoin. Where do I buy a cryptocurrency? Are they Bitcoin banks? Not Bitcoin banks, but Bitcoin exchanges. Yes, lots of them all over the world. So the way you would go about getting a cryptocurrency is either acting as a miner, because remember we said that miners were rewarded with portions of Bitcoins in exchange for the work that they do, verifying. So that would be one way. The other way would be, as you say, to buy Bitcoin. And you can buy Bitcoin in most major fiat currencies, so a fiat currency just being a traditional currency. And yeah, there, there are exchanges all over the place. Some take percentages of the value of the transaction. Some exchanges are platform marketplaces, which allow you to match up with other individuals looking to buy and sell bitcoins, all sorts of different business models. So why would anyone want to make use of cryptocurrency? What are the benefits? What's the potential of this new world? Originally, the concern was that 
central banks and banks were too meddlesome in the financial system. And cryptocurrencies and blockchain in particular came about as a way to transact with other people where you didn't need a trusted third party. And this was because these trusted, in inverted commas, third parties could meddle and could reverse transactions, could change transactions, which of course you can't do in, in the Bitcoin system. So that's that's the first benefit, that you can't reverse a transaction once this has occurred. The second benefit is that you don't need to have a trusted third party or to trust the person on the other side of the transaction because the verification system in the blockchain verifies that everything is as it should be. Um, and that, in principle, should allow for trust among people who are transacting. Um, another thing is just the notion of distributed control. Uh, so no single actor in the ecosystem can change the system itself. There has to be some sort of democratic consensus in order for it to change. So, yeah, so so there's a democratic element to it. And that's, but that's on a very ideological level. On a practical level, although the Bitcoin blockchain has become very slow, that is a set of problems that are unique to that specific blockchain. And they can be solved in other kinds of cryptocurrencies and other, let's call them second generation blockchain ecosystems. And this means that you can have near instantaneous verification of transactions, uh, which, is a, which is a great benefit. So it's near instantaneous and without an inefficient third party. The other thing is because what transactions are reduced to in this system is essentially data and data that is then using cryptography uh, transformed for storage within the system, any kind of data can be transferred. So it doesn't need to just be my transaction to you. It could be the transfer of a house. It could be the transfer of any any number of assets. Um, so what it becomes, this ecosystem, is a asset agnostic, uh, self-verifying, potentially very fast method of sending said assets from one person to another or to multiple people. And that is a lot more efficient than many transfer systems that exist today, uh, first and foremost in the financial world, but also when you look at things like uh, supply chains, when you look at entrepreneurial finance, these all are areas that are likely to be changed by just these properties. Cryptocurrencies, um, as they've already existed, or the kinds that historically have existed, provide utility within an ecosystem. One uses a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin as a reward for verifying transactions. You can use it as a way to incentivize miners to behave in certain ways. In the second generation of blockchain uh, applications, these utility tokens, as they're called, can be used to incentivize all sorts of other behavior. So you can use a utility token to signal your identity. So you could use it to sign a smart contract, for instance. You could use it uh, in a voting system to indicate that you are Jessica and not somebody else. 
Um, and this is a natural progression from the cryptocurrencies. When we consider that the data that is being transferred doesn't have to just be a utility token, it could be any kind of asset, this opens up for the securitization of um, all sorts of assets in the form of tokens or what have begun to be called equity tokens uh, in entrepreneurial finance. And so essentially what you could have is a crowdfunding system where you would purchase equity in a firm but you wouldn't have to go through the existing financial system, A, and you wouldn't have to register the equity in any particular country necessarily. Uh, your equity would resign in, or reside rather, in that token. Um, and one of the consequences of this is that you have a much more efficient kind of equity sale because it is all perfectly electronic. There's no need for the analog world. Uh, you also have market liquidity because equity tokens are already in a security form that can be easily transferred and traded. You can trade them fairly quickly. You don't need to build an additional secondary market. Um, and then third, you can engage in this kind of equity investment or equity crowdfunding without the need for trusted third parties, which is again a break from the status quo. So lots of different permutations of the original cryptocurrency idea. So it's possible that if I wanted to start a company in South Africa today, I could issue equity to my shareholders um, and run the entire financing in theory of this company without a central bank, without any sort of bank by using cryptocurrencies? That's an interesting question. South Africa is an interesting example uh, because South African entrepreneurs have had trouble bringing foreign currency or foreign capital into the country in the form of investment and often face quite high fees and taxes on that. Potentially, a South African entrepreneur could just keep their... Uh, capital in their Bitcoin or Ether wallet and keep it outside of the existing financial system, which would allow them to use it in ways that SARS, for example, couldn't see. Uh, and so, so it's at the moment, this is a kind of gray area in most countries, but on a practical level, it would allow them to circumvent laws that although may exist for social reasons, sometimes are inconvenient or cumbersome for entrepreneurs. Well, we know that SARS just recently announced that it's going to quote unquote provide clarity on the tax implications of transacting in cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin uh, in either an interpretation or practice note, end quote. They were going to do that early this year, 2018, which, I mean, it sounds ambitious given everything you've said. Um, I, mean, I know that other countries like the UK and Canada are also said to be trying to do this. Um, I mean, in your opinion, how successful are these, you know, sort of regulations around cryptocurrencies likely to be? Fairly successful. And, and there's a couple of different layers to this. I think most governments today have issued warnings about the volatility of cryptocurrencies and how speculative they are as assets. And I think that's very important for the average Joe considering purchasing cryptocurrencies for investment purposes. 
When it comes to other kinds of regulations, it, it varies quite widely. On the one hand, uh, firms looking to build businesses either on the blockchain or making use of cryptocurrencies or tokens, they, they are looking for jurisdictions in which there is clarity because that, that provides them with certainty uh, as entrepreneurs who are running a business. And so that is a very, very positive thing. Uh, and I think most uh, countries are actually looking to do that. They're trying to have regulations that facilitate the development of this particular system. And some of the countries that are way ahead in that are countries that are trying to position themselves as crypto paradises, for lack of a better word. So Switzerland is one Gibraltar is another, Singapore is another, um, and then as you mentioned, Venezuela um, paradoxically has been very crypto-friendly. Uh, on the other hand, there are countries that have tried to ban cryptocurrencies outright. China is one, um, Russia is another, and there are also governments that are just crypto unfriendly. So South Korea is one of those. Uh, Japan is also another. Uh, the difficulty being, as I described earlier, that these ecosystems essentially exist outside of the existing financial system, which means that even if countries ban them, it becomes quite a headache for those countries to then enforce those particular regulations. And certainly if we look at the Chinese example, they have had quite a rough time trying to clamp down on Bitcoin exchanges and Bitcoin miners because those individuals have gone underground once bans came into place. So it's it's very much a mixed bag. Regulations can be very positive or, or they can be negative or, or just neutral. It's unsurprising to me that it's Russia and China that have responded quite negatively to cryptocurrencies, given that in both those economies, the state is quite interventionist. You know, it's it's a large state that wishes to um, exert quite large degrees of control over the market and its citizens. Um, I know that the South African state, uh, if not actually being there, certainly has aspirations to be a, a quite an interventionist state. So should the South African Reserve Bank be nervous about the development of, of a whole way of financing companies, currencies, etc., which cuts it out of the, the chain altogether. One of the interesting paradoxes about Russia and China is although they don't like independent cryptocurrencies, they see a lot of potential in the technology. And so Russia has been looking into developing, uh, let's call it an e-ruble, uh, so the, the ruble but in a, cryptocurren a cryptocurrency form. And there are mutterings that China is looking to, to do the same. So they want to build systems that have all of the technical benefits that we've discussed, but that are much more within their control. And I think that's very interesting. When it comes to, to South Africa, I think that South Africa could learn a lot from places like Sweden, where they have been very receptive to cryptocurrencies and the possibilities of cryptocurrencies. And tax authorities and governments, instead of issuing blanket rulings, have worked quite closely with entrepreneurs to make sure that entrepreneurs collaborate with the regulatory ecosystem so that 
although in principle, the blockchain ecosystem could be outside of the existing financial system, collaboration between regulators and entrepreneurs means that entrepreneurs have an incentive to operate within existing structures, whether because they have tax benefits for doing so, or just because they're looking to be seen as legitimate and operating in the existing financial system allows for that legitimacy. So looking forward, I would hope that the South Africans would learn from this cooperative example rather than issuing blanket bans on cryptocurrencies or ICOs. Pick and Pay cautiously piloted allowing customers to pay for their groceries with Bitcoin um, in September 2017. Um, are we all going to be able to choose freely between rands and cryptocurrencies when shopping at Woolies in the near future? Um, That sounds like a gimmick to me, (laughs) Um, mostly because cryptocurrencies or most cryptocurrencies today are so volatile that it's very difficult to set prices in those cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin in particular. Uh, so, So it sounds like a bad idea to denominate transactions in those cryptocurrencies. What I do think, though, is that... 10, 20 years from now, fiat currencies are going to have crypto counterparts or e-counterparts. So Russia, for instance, has already been experimenting with an e-ruble. So has the country Georgia. Uh, Sweden has also been experimenting with an e-krona. And I would be very surprised if South Africa didn't also engage in similar experiments. And then in that case, you would be able to choose freely between physical rands in cash and the e-rand, which being a cryptocurrency at some point in the future. Well, I look forward to doing my shops in my e-rands in the future. (laughs) Claire, you've just completed your PhD in uh, Stockholm, Sweden, which is where you live. Could you tell us a little bit about your research and your areas of interest? Absolutely. So what I'm interested in is the decentralization and the distribution of the financial system, particularly post-financial crisis. And what I've been looking into is entrepreneurial finance and crowdfunding in particular, but then also uh, cryptocurrencies and the blockchain as new financial systems start to be built. And what I'm curious about is how entrepreneurs go about building these new nascent financial systems, given that they have very little legitimacy, sometimes are even stigmatized, and have very little in the way of resources through which to push their message. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's what my PhD was largely about. Uh, if one kind of makes it a little bit more uh, macro level, what I'm interested in is how these technical or digital artifacts change power relationships, uh, perhaps because they remove the need for trust or perhaps because distribution, which is a technical feature, has lent to uh, decentralization, which is which says something about, about power, namely that things become democratic instead of centrally controlled. And, and that's really what I'm interested in, in, is the dynamic between the technical and changes in power relationships. 
it seems to me that cryptocurrencies are going to be so disruptive that um, we might we might need to have you back in a year just to sort of see see how these power relations have changed. You know, the impact it's had in the developing world and the developed world. Um, the whole thing seems to be uh, changing so rapidly. Um, a last question that I ask all my guests um, is if listeners to this podcast want to learn any more about Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies or this whole new world, um, are there any resources that you'd recommend that they go and seek out, sort of a book or a website or anything that you think would be beneficial? So I think it would be very interesting for people who are interested in cryptocurrencies to understand the underlying technology a little bit better because the technology guides the whole ecosystem. Uh, and in order to do that, there are a number of online courses. Um, we can look at, uh, you can look at Coursera, for instance, who has them. Uh, just a, a little Google would, would be great. Uh, I can also send you some links about interesting things that have been written around, around blockchain, which is really what most people think is the most revolutionary, is the underlying technology. So I'll pass those on to you and you can share them with your readers or listeners rather. Fantastic. If you send them to me, um, listeners, I'll put them in the show notes when, when I upload this podcast. Claire Ingram Bogush. It's been so great having you on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can download other episodes of The Commute from the iTunes Store or at www.thecommute.co.za. If you have any ideas for the second series of the show, please do email thecommutesa at gmail.com. That's thecommutesa, all one word, at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please take the time to rate it on the iTunes store because iTunes reviews are super important. You can also find The Commute on Facebook at The Commute Essay, also one word, and on Instagram at, you guessed it, The Commute Essay. And although Twitter was essentially the inspiration for the fithering of hell in Dante's Inferno, you can also find The Commute on Twitter at Big Ideas Podcast. But if you can't find it amongst all the Russian Twitter bots, eh, so be it. Thank you.